All right, God is light. So this comes from 1 John 1, 5, and it's a description of who God is. God is light. Now, in the sense that John means it, he is talking about moral perfection, holiness, and otherness. God is in a category all by himself. The way we've described it is he is in a circle all by himself, existing for all eternity, and everything else in the second circle is dependent on God in the first circle. If the first circle disappears, everything in the second circle disappeared. Everything in the second circle is utterly dependent on the first circle, and in the first circle, no dependence on the second. So when I was a newer Christian, I had this error floating around in my mind, which actually made me live a way that was not helpful. And it was, God needs me. I thought God needed me. He needed me to you know, witness to people. He needed me to, to exercise my spiritual gifts. Now in some sense, that's true. But uh, Acts 17 says this, Paul to the philosophers, on Mars Hill at the Areopagus said this, God is not made by humans' hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Meaning, we don't have a weak God who is in need of followers to do his will. No, rather, we are utterly in need of God to keep us breathing. That's the reality. God doesn't need you. You really need him. And that's a really humble position to take, but that's a true position for you to take. Listen, if you think, oh, well, God needs me to worship. He needs worshipers. That's why he made me. What did John the Baptist say about stones? Like, God can raise up children from Abraham from them stones. He don't need you. And so that's actually a really good place to, to be in your mind when you think about God. God is in a circle all by himself, and we in this second circle are utterly dependent on him. And if he doesn't give full attention to your very molecular structure being upheld, you turn into a pile of dust and it floats away in the wind as if snap, uh, you know, Thanos did the snap. Okay, you're done. That's the reality. Now, that God, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, condescended and became us. The Creator became the creature, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ showed us who, it, who God is, what He's like, what pleases Him, what displeases Him, and this is what 1 John, in part, is about. 1 John is about who Jesus is and how we can know we belong to him, and how we know how we can live a life that pleases him. Did you know that you can live a life that actually pleases God, and you can live a life that displeases God? That's a reality. And so, in this church, what we do is we take a book of the Bible, generally, and we just go verse by verse by verse all the way through the book without skipping any verses, because uh, if we did, we would be tempted to skip the hard parts. And we say, no, we'll, we'll talk about the hard parts as well as the easy parts. And so, tonight, you are landing on 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. And uh, we're going to go all the way down to verse 11. So we'll finish with verse 11. All right, let's start by reading. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. Mm. All right, let's just stop. I can't help it. 
John is telling you something very important here. John 17, 3 says, to know God is eternal life. Jesus is praying in his high priestly prayer, and he says, this is eternal life, Father, that they know you and Jesus Christ, the one whom you've sent. So friends, if you want to spend eternity with God in a new heavens and a new earth, it's really important that you make sure you know him because that's what Jesus says is eternal life. To know him is eternal life and to have eternal life, to possess it, to be connected to the one who is life itself. And so John says, look, by this we know, not think, not hope, but know. We know we have come to know him. Now, let's pause again. The first know is a knowledge thing, right? We have come to know something. Like, I know that if I take uh, cream and put it in this coffee, it's going to defile it. Especially if it's flavored. You coffee defilers, you. I know that because I've, I've drunk coffee with cream in it. It's terrible. It's horrible. I know that. Okay? The second no is a relational no. Look at that. By this we know, knowledge, that we have come to know him. Now friends, this is a very different kind of no, okay? I could say, or you could say maybe, uh, I know Eddie Jones in in the blue shirt, okay? I know Eddie Jones. Meanwhile, you've watched his sermons on YouTube. You've watched his sermons on YouTube. Did I say blue? I meant green. I'm not colorblind. Sorry, Eddie. You blended right in with the chair and you disappeared. And I saw my man Keith's blue shirt back there. All right. So I I know Eddie. I know Eddie. Yeah, you've seen his YouTube teaching. You've you've heard his his biography, you know, podcast. And you're like, yeah, I know Eddie. But yet you've never, you know, eaten bacon and grits and eggs at his house. You've never used his restroom. Right? You've never flown to Africa with him. You've never, you know, actually sat down and had a conversation with him. You don't know Eddie. Friends, knowing someone is actually having a relationship with them, meaning you've lived life with them. You're like, yeah, I, I know them. Like, I stay at Eddie's house when I'm homeless. <laughs> like, when the, when the bills aren't paying, the water gets shut off, I go to Eddie's and take a shower. I don't personally. I'm using that as an illustration. I know Eddie. Right? So to know somebody is to have an intimate relationship with them. Friends, that's what you are supposed to have with God. Not I know about God. I know all about the Bible, and it tells me about God. Friends, that is very different than knowing God. And here, John says we can know that we've come to know him. Hmm. How? if we keep his commandments. Now, many of us don't like that because we don't like keeping commandments. We like grace, right? Hey, it's not about works, baby. It's about grace. And so I don't need any commandments. Get, the, get that law out of here. I'm an anti-law type of Christian, right? No, you're not. If you refuse to obey the commands of Jesus, John says here very clearly, you don't know him. You can say you know him, but you actually don't. 
Okay? Now, I say that in such a bold way because I'm trying to get you to see the seriousness of this verse. Often what we do with the Bible is we read right through these passages, and then we read the second one, and we totally miss the weight of it. What John is saying here is you can know that you know God if you're obedient to his commands. Now, this is not a concept that is strange in the New Testament. The New Testament knows much about obedience confirming your faith. In fact, that's what, that's what the whole New Testament would say. You can claim all day to know God and, and have eternal life and be saved, and yet you're utterly disobedient to his, to his law. And, and the Bible would say you don't know him. You think you know him. Okay? And so let, let's talk about this, all right? Let's talk about this. Um, Galatians 4.9 would actually say it this way, and I like this better. He says to the Galatians, Paul, but now that you have come to know God, and then he qualifies it, he says, or rather to be known by God. But Paul's like, you know, you know what? It's better to be known by God than it is to know him because he's the greater and you're the lesser. Isn't that amazing? So here's something amazing about knowing God. When we know him, he actually knew us first. He decided to have a relationship with you before the world even began, according to many passages of Scripture. Ephesians 1 is a long one you could read. God chose, if you're a Christian, to have a loving, intimate, personal relationship with you before the world was created. That's what Ephesians 1 says. So though it is important that we know we know God, it's also really helpful to know that if we do really know God, he knew us first. Amen? All right, good. So let's look at another passage um, that says this same thing. This is clear, all right? This one's super clear, and it's small. Isn't that helpful? Jesus, in the upper room discourse, meaning it's the Last Supper, and he's about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he's about to go to uh, his trial, and then he's about to go to the cross. So this is like the last days of Jesus' life here, and he's teaching, and he says to his disciples, and if we are his disciples, he says to us, look, if you love me, say it. Wow, that's nice. I love you too. If you love me, you will keep my commands, Jesus says. Now, here's something helpful to point out, okay? There is a causal relationship here. Look, does the keeping of commands cause the love? No. He says, if you love me, it will cause something. It will cause you to keep my commands. So, the keeping of commands here is connected to loving God. It's not like uh, your boss and, you know, you don't want to lose your job, and so you just keep your boss's commands because you want to keep them happy. No, this is more like your spouse. I love my spouse, and so when my spouse asks me to do something, I do it to display my love for her. When God asks me to do something because I love him, I display that love for him by keeping his commands. And so the uglier truth is this. If you refuse to obey the commands of Jesus, what you're saying is, I don't love you which is the greatest commandment there is in the entire scriptures. And John's going to go there, <clears throat> excuse me, go there in a minute. And so here we can see, if you love me, 
you will do something. You will keep my commands. But the loving plays itself out by keeping his commands. And this is something you will want to do. And John continues to unpack this throughout the letter. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commands. Now, we know where John got that, right? He got that from his gospel that he wrote. We just read it. And he heard it at the Last Supper and recorded it for us. Verse 4, whoever says, quote, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Okay? And so uh, the debate here uh, about this is, is it God's love for the person or is it the person's love for God that's being perfected? It's an interesting question. I, I think it is whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is being perfected. Does our love need to be perfected or does God's love need to be perfected? Probably ours, right? Probably ours. And so it's probably our love for God that is being perfected as we wrestle with keeping his commands. Because his commands are just easy, right? Don't lust even once. Don't say a defiling word to anyone. When you're angry, don't sin. Do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. And we could go on and on with all the commands. Okay, and by the way, some of you were thinking like, yo, that's Paul. I know my Bible, sucker. That's Paul. Yeah, but, but I would say to you this. The Spirit of Jesus is the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul, and so the commands of Paul are essentially the commands of Jesus because it's the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write it. All the commands of Scripture come not from, it's not like you must obey Paul to prove you love Jesus. That's not what it says. When you are obedient to Scripture, Scripture is God's Word, and you are being obedient to God. Okay? So it's not just if you have a red letter Bible, you just find whatever's in red and be obedient to that and you're good to go. No, the entire Bible with all of its demands and commands are on you as a Christian. Now, the Old Testament, the dietary laws, the calendar laws, the civil laws, okay, those are all fulfilled in Christ. But the moral law is still a part of what you must seek to, by the Holy Spirit's power, obey. And your obedience to the law will demonstrate, that's an important word, your love for God. Demonstrate. Demonstrate the reality that you have love for God in your heart. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. All right, friends, listen. You want security? You want assurance of your faith? You want to know that you belong to Jesus for sure? Here's some really clear statements. By this we may know that we are in Christ. That means born again, saved, not going to hell, going to heaven. Whoever says he abides in him, John 15, you remember that? Abide in my word and my word abide in you. Okay, John's pulling from his gospel, and he wrote it in the gospel because he was there and heard Jesus say it. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way 
in which he walked. He ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, when Jesus was on earth, we have recorded records of his conversations and his acts, right? Now, we cannot do the specific things he did, like tell dead people, get up, and they get up. We cannot uh, tell people with, with, with broken legs, just stand up and start walking around. He hasn't given us that kind of authority. He did give the apostles that kind of authority in Acts to prove they were who they claimed to be and to authenticate their message. But now, he hasn't given that kind of authority to people. And if he has, friends, wouldn't YouTube and Facebook and Instagram be blowing up? It happens one time for real, and you don't think that's going all over every news network? So those who claim that it's happening, I don't know. I don't know. Now, I'm not a cessationist for those of you who are, who are theologians in here. I am a continuist. I believe God can heal. I have a story of healing myself. What I'm saying is God giving you the individual power to perform the miraculous as if you were Jesus, no. No. That has not been given to us. Does God answer prayer? Yes. The prayer of a righteous man avails much, James tells us. And so God will answer prayer for people if it's according to his will for them to be healed, if that's what you're praying for. All right, let's, let's move forward here. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. We're talking about character. We're talking about uh, quality of attitude, like his, his attitude towards outsiders the way he loved people, especially the unlovable and the dirty and the defiled, the way he went out of his way to sacrifice himself in order to love on people and serve them and care for them, right? For many of us, it's not just like, I'm so physically tired, I can't do it. It's like my favorite show's on, I can't do it, right? Come on, let's be honest. It's like, I ain't got time for you. My show's on, <laughs> the game's on, whatever. And, and so we choose smaller, lesser things over eternal things like serving one another often, okay? And I'm, and I'm throwing, you know, hard things out at you for a reason because John is saying, look, we, may, we need to walk as Jesus walked. We need to walk as, here's Spurgeon. The Spirit of God has anointed all the chosen of God who are regenerated. That just means born again, believers. And he dwells within them he dwells with them and in them. The Spirit cannot produce unholiness. If then the Spirit dwells in us, and if it does not, we are not in Christ, he must in us work to conform us to Christ that we may walk just as he walked. The Holy Spirit is up to, in your life, changing and transforming you more into the image of Jesus day by day by day. This is Romans 8, 29. We have been chosen before the world to be conformed to the image of Christ. The Spirit is at work in you to make you more like Jesus, but you actually have to put some effort in and work out your own salvation, Philippians 2, 12, because it's God working in you both to will, that's the choosing, and to act, that's the doing, according to his good pleasure. And so as you choose to take steps of obedience, you know what happens? The Holy Spirit moves in and through you in that moment to help you, enable you, and act through you to do the good 
so that he gets the glory and other people are helped. But you actually have to make some choices. Like you have to choose to turn that website off or to positively get dressed and go help someone. Like you have to do that. It's not just gonna happen on its own. And so we have to make conscious choices towards holiness. It's trash to think that I will just automatically, by, by doing nothing, just grow into Christ-likeness. That's not how it works. You have to put forth effort. And in your effort, the Holy Spirit moves in and through you to change and transform you and to bless other people. Amen? And by you seeing yourself change and other people be blessed, you can know confirmation-wise that you have eternal life. Your good works don't save you, but they confirm that you are saved. And we'll get to that in a minute. All right, let's move on. Verse 7. Beloved, John calls his, his reading audience here loved ones. I'm writing to you no new commandments, but an old commandment that you have from the beginning. Okay? So I'm not writing anything new here, John says. And a Jewish audience would have, would have immediately understood what he was saying. A Jewish audience would have, would have totally picked up on this new and old commandment here. Because Deuteronomy, the, the Shema, is what the Jewish people said repeatedly. Here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then, well, what about you shall love your neighbor as yourself? Well, that comes from Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, when you read the Leviticus passage here, you can understand the way it frames love your neighbor as yourself, it does seem to be talking about strictly Jewish people because this was written to the, the Jewish uh, exodus who came out into the desert and they were one people, uh, sons of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. And so you can see here, your brother in your heart against the son of your own people. And so neighbor here seems to be talking strictly about Jewish people. And so you can see when Jesus came along and was asked by a, a scribe, like, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and, you shall, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29, ready? But he, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Just my fellow Jewish ethnicity? And then what did Jesus do next in response? Do you remember? He told the parable of what we call the good what? Samaritan. 
Right? The Good Samaritan. And so in this story, I'm not going to go through it because we don't have time. In this story, uh, uh, a man falls ill to robbers. And they beat him naked and he's bloody and he's laying on the side of the road. And a religious leader walks past and he's like, I, I ain't got time for that. And then another religious leader walks by who's supposed to be upright and holy. And like, I ain't got time for that. And then a Samaritan walks past who, if you know the culture uh, in the first century when this was being asked, Uh, The Samaritans were in close proximity to the Jews, and they were the hated outsiders because they were half Jewish and half other ethnicity, half invading nation, okay? And they were despised by the Jewish people. In fact, if they were going north up to, say, Galilee, they would literally travel around Samaria, go way out of their way so they don't have to travel through Samaria, so they don't have to see any Samaritans. And so Jesus brilliantly says, And a Samaritan comes past. And seeing him, a Jew, hurting, dresses his wounds, helps heal him, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, provides lodging. And then on top of that, the next day, he says, I have to go on a journey. If he needs any more care, here's some more money to care for him. And then Jesus brilliantly says to this Jewish religious authority, which one was a neighbor? Mm. He made the religious, hated, and ethnic outcast the hero, and he had no choice but to say, the Samaritan. That's your neighbor. And so the question for us is, well, what's the hated for you? Like, what's the other for you? Might not be ethnic, but it certainly could be political. What about that neighbor with the barking dogs? That's me. I know all my neighbors hate me. It's terrible. We're not discussing this right now. That's my daughter, by the way. So, so who, who is the other to you, right? We don't have a choice to say, I will love those who love me. You know why? Because Jesus said, even pagans do that. What if you bless only those who will bless you in return? I mean, doesn't even tax collectors, don't they do that? Tax collectors were traitors to the Jewish people. And so Jesus says, how about this? You love your enemies. You do good to those who persecute you, who malign you, who say all kinds of malicious things against you. You love them. Then we'll know you're Christian. See, because that's impossible, friends. Isn't it? Me talking about it and now you thinking, oh man, I got to obey that? Yeah, you do. And, and some of you are saying, that's impossible. And I would say, amen. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. Because you cannot do this in and of your own strength. The Christian life is not something that men and women can accomplish on their own. You need God to do that. And friends, that is the very person you have if you're a Christian. This is a supernatural religion that displays itself in supernatural acts of kindness that don't make sense. Why wouldn't you take an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth? Why would you bless them when they just assaulted you? God. It's the only reason. Okay? And we could get into the nuances of the Sermon on the Mount and its applications, but the point being here is, friends, if you have hatred in your heart for other people and you have a list of reasons, that is not Christian at all, at all, and you need to do some work with God. All right, let's move on. 
The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, this new commandment that he's writing is a clarification and a simplification of the entire Old Testament. In fact, in Romans, uh, Paul says it like this. He says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And he's talking about the second table of the law. Okay? We love God by keeping commandments one through four, and then five through ten, we love our neighbor. Okay? And, and we, can, we can do some biblical theology on the Sabbath, and we've done that. But here, the new command is, listen, it's in Christ. Because Jesus is owning this and saying, this is my commandment now, that you love one another. You remember, someone comes to Jesus and says, what work must I do to inherit eternal life? Believe in the one whom he has sent. And that belief is not just, oh yeah, I believe in you in some abstract, ethereal way. It's I believe in you in such a way that I believe who you say you are and I am going to live my life in light of that. Receiving your commandments as commands of God and by your help, I'm going to live that out. That's what it means. All right, and so verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, in Jesus, and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. For John, uh, light and darkness are, are themes that he uses a lot in his gospel as well. Darkness represents sin and defilement and the satanic world, and light represents holiness and goodness and the kingdom of God. And we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. And what he's saying here is, we are living in a dark world right now, but the light is already beginning to shine, and it's getting greater and greater and greater. The brightness is coming, and one day, friends, it will be full-on bright with no darkness left. We are headed to a world where the darkness will be completely swallowed up, and we're going to live in that world. Isn't that good news? that we will always be loving one another as ourselves. So you'll be doing it, but it'll be aimed at you by everyone else as well. That would be heaven, would it not? Can you imagine no one is ever rude to you ever again? And can you imagine yourself never being rude to anyone else ever again? Because, remember the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not irritable, it's not rude, it's not rude. And so imagine that way of being to everyone all the time without fault. Like, I know how I am in the morning, especially if the dogs have gotten me up 17 times and, and you know, the son has tried to crawl in the bed and demanded juice seven times, and then I wake up and I'm just the most holy, non-irritable, like, kind, patient, loving person ever. N no. I'm all in the flesh. And even after a coffee, like, the flesh has only half died. 
right? And then I drink another cup, and it's still there for about an eighth, right? And, and, and there is some theology to our physicality that we need to make sure that we're, we're obeying God's design in our physicality uh, so that we're not trying to go against his design and also try to, to live a life that pleases him. We got to live within the design, okay? But that was just a joke and an illustration. All right, here, let's go to verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Okay, so brother I do think means Christian. So friends, ready? If there are Christians in your life right now that you hate, let's read this. Whoever says, quoting, says, he is in the light, I'm in the light, and hates his brother is actually still in the darkness. Friends, John and Jesus take it very, very serious the way you think about and your attitude towards other Christians. And if you have hatred in your heart for other Christians, you're like, you don't understand. John's like, it doesn't matter. You must love them. Now, loving them doesn't mean that you put yourself in a reconciled relationship with them that they get to abuse you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you can't harbor hatred in your heart for another believer. You can't do that. And if you struggle with that, friends, here's my encouragement. Let's do some pastoral counseling. All right? Let's talk and let's try to figure out what's going on there so that you can be freed from that sin. It's a sin. Because freedom from that sin will allow you to walk lighter in the world and enjoy God more and enjoy his people more. God doesn't want us, like, held down by sin. How many of you have ever tried to play basketball in Timberland boots? I have. Only one other person in here? I'm speaking to the wrong people. How about steel toe boots? Anybody? Ever try to play basketball in steel toes? You can do it, but it's hard, man. Like, you, they're clunky, and they flop, and they don't bend like a, you know, like, a, like a Nike basketball shoe. You can play, but you are seriously, like, handicapped at, at, at basketball. However, friends, if you have hatred in your heart as a Christian for other people, and you are not growing, that's why. That's one of the reasons why. There's probably more. But if you're wondering, like, man, why aren't I growing, and why isn't God real to me, and why won't the scriptures open up to me, and why, 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 yet you have all this hate in your heart. Friends, you're playing basketball on steel toes. Ask Justin for some shoes. He's got some extra ones. He'll hook you up. <laughs> all right. So let, let's, let's look at this text real quick. Uh, every time I preach from 1 John, I will reference John because... It is the the same author, and he picks up on a lot of the same themes. And so here, John 13, 33 to 35, John says this, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Now, Jesus is talking here. He's in the upper room, same context as the other text, that uh, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Little children, Jesus talking to his disciples, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am, you cannot come. He's talking about going to the cross, going to the grave, and then rising, and then ascending back into heaven. You, You can't come with me. A new commandment I give to you, a new one. So remember, John said it's old, but it's also new. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, 
The weight of context here is lost on us. What came just before this? Does anyone know? Any John experts in the room? Jesus just washed their nasty, smelly, dirty, feces-infested feet. Just as I loved you. Remember when, when you wouldn't wash each other's feet, and then I took all my clothes off, put a towel on, and then I washed every one of your nasty feet because you were so prideful you wouldn't do that? So I did it. In that way, you need to love one another. Mm, I don't like that. Okay, now, now in our culture, like we have shoes and socks and, and foot washing is not a thing here. But what's, what's another job that's kind of nasty and undesirable? I don't know. Think about it. How can you serve your brother and sister in such a way that kind of costs you a little bit and you got to humble yourself? Friends, that's how we should be living our lives. Christianity is not a religion you get into so that you might be served. Christianity is a religion you get into so that you're served by Jesus in order that you might go and serve. This is a a serving type of of relationship here we have with Jesus. In fact, the scripture goes so far as to say is when we are serving others, it's God through us serving. We are the body of Christ. And so when we do good to others, it's God through us. We are his means to bless a broken and dying world and our brothers and sisters. And so let me, let me give you a practical example. Let's say that, man, you, you, you are down on your water bill, down on your water bill, down on, and, and like all of a sudden the water gets shut off. I've had my water shut off in the past. That's terrible. It's a terrible feeling, right? The, the water guy was like, yo, you should fill up your tub because we're going to shut this off and you're not going to have any water. And so, you know, you start making, making phone calls like, crap, I got to get money. Like, I got nothing, right? And so, let's say that you call a fellow church member who you know has some means, and you got to humble yourself to tell them what happened, right? Because what does it mean that you had your water shut off? It means something. We don't know the story, but it means something. Okay, and then they say, you know what? I love you. I got some extra. I'm going to cover that whole thing. And you're like, no, no, no. I just want to borrow it. I'll pay it back. I swear. I'm just going to... And no, I'm going to pay it. And they do. They pay it and they refuse to receive repayment. What is that? Friend, that's God through this fellow church member paying your water bill. By the way, it wasn't the last water bill. This was like 10 years ago. Okay? Some of you were like, bro, you need like a Wendy's gift card or something? No, we're good. This was like before I was pastoring. There were some rough times. Come talk to me. I know what it's like to roll quarters for groceries. I've been there, right? I know what it's like to not have enough money to pay the bills and eat. I've been there. All right. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now watch this. By this, by your loving one another, by this, all people will know what? That you are my disciples. Huh. He's like... You want to witness to the world? Live a life of love towards one another, and the outsiders are going to look in and be like, this is different. Like, what kind of community is this? They're going to know that we belong to Jesus by the way we love one another. If you have love for one another, it's a powerful witness to the world. And how many of you have either been in churches or you've heard your friends say to you when you invite them to church, ah, man, the church is full of hypocrites. You know, they talk a good game, but there's no action. You know, they're all, and then they have this, they're this, they're this, they're this, they're this. Maybe that was you, and you're here tonight. 
You know, there are those people in the church, let's be honest, because it's full of sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come for the, for the healthy, but the sick. And so it would actually be right for you to understand that Jesus said, I came for sick people, not for healthy people. So when you come to church and encounter some sick people, that's who he came for. And so if you're in here tonight and you're sick, Jesus came for you and he wants to help you get well. But he's not gonna leave you sick. He's gonna help you get well. Right? All of us at one time were sick and dying and Jesus breathed life into us. We were dead actually, I wanna be theologically precise. We were dead according to Ephesians 2. And he breathed life into us and he is growing us and changing us and making us more spiritually healthy even as our outward selves are wasting away. All right, we're almost done friends. Let's, let's finish this. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Okay, so John puts such a high emphasis on loving the brother and abiding in the light that there won't be stumbling. Now, now think about darkness and stumbling. How many of you have ever walked through your house or the woods in the dark? It is hard not to stumble, is it not? Right? You slip on a Lego, you slip on a, a, you know, a pillow or whatever, you trip over your shoes, you bang your knee off the, off the coffee table. And, and when it's dark, it's hard to navigate. But when it's super bright, and you're tripping over your feet, you're just clumsy. I mean, that's all it is. There's no other excuse. You're, you're the person that trips up the steps, not down. <laughs> I've tripped up the steps, yeah, confess. But the idea is as, as the light is there, you know how to navigate. You can miss potholes. You can miss sins that so easily entangle you because the light is bright and it's exposing them for what it is. They walk in the light as he is in the light. Walk in a life of love. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. Okay, so John's being really clear, really, there, there you just, no black and white here other than this is this and this is that, period. No, no gray. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. All right, this is the last text, and it's the one that Franny read and that you all read. This is a dangerous text to have read and not explain. And so let me explain it as the conclusion of this sermon, okay? It's James 2, 18 to 21, okay? And James is, is, a, is, is writing to people here who are saying, I believe, I believe. They sing that song, I believe in you, I believe. I can't sing. I'm not going to do it. I believe. And so here he says, if someone says, you have faith and I have works. Hey, you got works? I got faith. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. James is like, look, you talk a good game, I'm going to walk a good game. And I'm going to prove my talk by my walk. All you got is talk. And James is like, that, that is a, that's a no, no good deal for Christians. If we're going to talk it, we need to walk it. Let's keep going. You believe that God's one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. And so he, he's, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6 that we just read earlier. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I'm an orthodox Old Testament believer. Okay, you believe God is one, that's great. So do demons. You got as much faith as a demon right now. Like demons know the Bible wonderfully. They're theologians, right? When, when Satan came to Jesus, he's quoted scripture right and left to him. 
Just because you know the Bible doesn't mean you're, you're, you're in. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Do you see that faith was active, that's important, active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works? Here's the way to say it, ready? We're saved by faith alone, but not faith that remains alone. We are saved by faith alone, that's what Paul says. But it's a faith that does not just remain, yeah, I have faith. No, works follow. This is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Saved unto good works. Saved first, unto good works. Second, okay? And so here, James is like, look, Abraham, he proved his faith by putting his son on the altar, and he was about to kill him. He proved that he believed God so much that he was about to take an unreasonable action. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not advocating for unreasonable action, and faith is not blind leaps into the dark, it is not, but the idea here is believing what God said. That's what Abraham did. He believed what God said in spite of contrary evidence, okay? And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness as he was called a friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, all right? That's a dangerous text right there because it seems to contradict exactly the opposite of what Paul said. Because Paul said, we're saved by faith alone and not works. But you need to understand, the context in which you find a verse is very key to understanding what the verse means. And so in this context, James is talking about people who claim to have faith but have nothing to back it up. When Paul says we're saved by faith alone and not works, he's talking to people who are leaving faith in order to justify themselves by works. And so context is really important. But if you did this, if you just took a passage out of Paul and took a passage out of James, stuck them next to each other, you'd be like, look, the Bible contradicts itself. It's super clear. No, you rip that out of context. Because James here is talking about people who claim to have faith and really don't. And Paul is talking about people who have faith but are about to leave it for the sake of works-based salvation. Get it? Context is king always when you're reading the Bible. And so make sure you're understanding the context before you start throwing around the word contradiction and make sure that you understand the context of the passage itself in the paragraph, in the larger book, in the larger of the whole of the, of the either New or Old Testament and then the whole book itself. The context is key for any interpretation. And so let's, let's keep going. Verse 25, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Okay, so let's stop there. What was that story about? Well, God was coming in to wipe out the city, and she believed that was about to happen. She believed the God of Israel was who he claimed to be, and he was about to take them out. And she was like, have mercy on me, a sinner. And she protected those spies, and as a, as a reward for her faith in believing in the God of, of Israel, Yahweh, her life and her family's life was spared. She proved her faith by her works, hiding the spies, hiding the spies. All right, verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, 
the works that we are supposed to do as Christians? Friends, love one another. And your loving one another is going to look like serving one another in various ways. Now, again, we don't serve and do good works in order to earn God's love and favor. We get that first. Because of what Jesus has done, we get his love and favor. And then our love, listen, God's love to us comes through Jesus Christ. Our love for God is displayed, displayed by our good works for others toward him. Is that clear? All right, good. Let's pray. Let's take communion. Let's have a meal together. (coughs) Father, we thank you for your great grace and mercy. Father, we don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your forgiveness. We don't deserve your grace. And yet you give it freely. Father, you change us into new creatures, new creations. You fill us with your very spirit. And God, you want us to live a different life than before when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God, we can't love our enemies. We can't even love our neighbors as ourselves without your help. And so we ask for your help, oh God. Would you please enable us to live out this kind of life that pleases you and blesses others. And God, I pray that as we improve and grow in our love for our neighbors and serving them, uh, especially the household of faith, would outsiders look in and see the love we have for one another and know that we are your disciples and desire to become your disciples as well. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the opportunity for the forgiveness of our sins. It's in his name we pray. Everyone said amen. If you could stand, please, we're going to sing.